Welcome to Moving the Needle, casual conversations about ways, big and small, to impact student learning. Brought to you by the Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm Erin Hager. Let's move the needle. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Moving the Needle. I'm excited to introduce you to our guest, Martha Ertman the Carol and Hanan Siebel Research Professor at the University of Maryland Cary Law School. Martha teaches contracts, commercial law, and foundational transaction skills courses, and she's written one of the textbooks used in her courses. Before joining the Maryland Cary Law faculty in 2007, she taught at the University of Utah and the University of Denver Law Schools, and she's also been a visiting faculty member at the Universities of Michigan, Connecticut, and Oregon. In today's conversation, we'll talk about the roots of law education, how it's different from other disciplines, and how it's evolving. We'll also talk about the changes she's made to her teaching, specifically through the creation of short instructional videos based on new understandings and epiphanies she's had about today's generation of learners. Professor Ertman shares how creating these videos has allowed her to reconceptualize her class time in completely new ways. And she's honest about how not everyone in her field agrees with these approaches. Finally, we'll talk about easy, simple strategies you can implement to help students see themselves as professionals in their chosen discipline. Thanks for joining us. Professor Erdman, welcome to Moving the Needle. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I appreciate that. And one of the many reasons we're so excited to have you here today is that this is our first interview with a member of the legal profession. And uh, I am really excited to talk today uh, about legal education. We uh, are a, as everyone knows, we are a health and human services professions campus. Um, And so I am very excited to talk about legal education and uh, and and its approach and its history. And so I was wondering if maybe we could just start there. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about legal education and its roots? Absolutely. And thank you for being excited. Very few people use the word excited and lawyer in the same sentence. <laughs> um, I've been teaching for almost 30 years. And when I began teaching in the 90s, we taught very much in a way that I was taught, which was how my teachers were taught, going all the way back to the late 19th century to a guy named Christopher Columbus Langdell. And he was at Harvard, and lawyers were just moving from an apprenticeship model to university education. And so to legitimize university education, Christopher Columbus Langdell appropriately named, discovered the case method. And so he handpicked famous cases, made them even more famous, used them as examples for students to learn how law operates. So it looks at appellate decisions, not trial court. It looks at the law and much less to contextual factors. And so uh, basically, enter millennials and Gen Z students and the internet, and things have really changed. So a lot is changing to uh, keep what's good about the most traditional legal pedagogy, but to update it to recognize that the uh, challenge for millennials and Gen Z is not to access information. They have it all on their phones. Their challenge is to chunk it, to organize it. 
And so the most basic things like start at the top of a document to read instead of doing a word search to find what you're looking for is something that has become an essential piece of our classes. Hmm. That's so interesting. So just going back a little bit to that case approach, um, in its roots and, and during that time and even into today, what are some benefits for students to learn about the law through cases? So uh, you'd get different answers depending on who you ask. Uh, traditional faculty members still use the Socratic method. So in a traditional law school first year class, there are maybe 70 students in the classroom. Students get called on by the professor and they have to recite a case. And in reciting the case, the professor will ask questions, but in the most pure form will never utter a declarative sentence. And the idea is students learn by questioning and, and discerning the rationale and patterns in the law themselves. Um, so that is a very, very traditional model. Um, modified Socratic is more common now, where there's a lot of back and forth. A lot of our students come to law school and they've never talked in front of a big group in class. This is really, I the way I teach, probably half the time should be me talking and half the time them talking. Um, in part because one of the best ways to learn is to um, actually uh, use multiple cognitive channels. So you're hearing, you're speaking, you're writing it down. And also, any professor who's paying attention knows that uh, the students care way more about each other than they do about us, even though supposedly we're the stars of the show. So when other students are talking, students have lots of reason to deeply engage. Yeah, that's great. It's it's interesting to hear, uh, you know, how that approach has evolved over time while still keeping the essence of using those cases and, and seeing the parallels among the cases and, and learning that thought process. Yeah, there are big patterns. Uh, we've often taken a, a cue from medical classrooms. Um, I heard sometime years ago that the time is long past where medical school can hope to convey all the things that students need to know. The best thing they can hope to do is convey patterns so that when the students graduate and become practitioners, they can teach themselves and also intuit from larger patterns how to find the materials they need to know. So at least the way I run my classroom is very much on the, on the pattern of teaching them how to teach themselves. Um, but the most traditional Socratic path would say, oh, well, you can't spood feed them. You can't tell them what the big patterns are. You have to let them discover it themselves. And my experience has been that um, students who have come of age in the last 10 years simply um, don't read as much, and they are not engaged with written materials in the same way. And so oral materials and visual materials are absolutely essential to convey the basic uh, legal doctrines that that the students are there to master. Yeah. And you have really developed some tools and approaches 
uh, once you recognize that that change in the this generation of students. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the things you've done um, to to meet your learners where they are? Absolutely. As I say, I've been teaching since the 90s, and I was really ripening into one of those crabby middle-aged women who was talking about kids these days. They're not reading enough. They're asking questions that are too basic. What's wrong? And what I realized, and this really took full flower during the pandemic, but I had been working on videos and quizzes for quite a while before that. But full flower in the pandemic where I realized every single student has in her pocket the computing power that could have gotten you to the moon. And so at any given moment, they can pull up anything very different from what prior generations had to do with hauling themselves to the library, finding the book, finding the page, and write it down so you don't have to go back again. And so it seems to me the primary challenge for them is sorting material. And so I have big old headlines in a million different ways in my classes to say, these are the patterns. This is what to look for. These are the key concepts. These are the terms. These are seeming synonyms that in fact have different meanings. And so I uh, basically over a period of time developed uh, a series of online um, videos that are part of a contracts casebook that I, I teach with, um, and then did ones on my own, just recorded in my kitchen during the pandemic. And then there are quizzes that go along with them, because I think both millennial and Gen Z students are so used to interaction that the old pattern of law school where your entire grade is based on a final exam and there's no practice and no feedback before that just simply doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And the creation of these videos has afforded you the opportunity to rethink your class time a little bit. So uh, do you want to talk a bit about how you see that relationship between information, uh, the the providing of information, and then the application of information with respect to what students are doing before, during, and after class? Absolutely. If we're, I think your listeners are probably familiar with Bloom's taxonomy, where you start with knowledge transfer and only gradually do you understand about how concepts actually work in the world and how they interact with each other. So that knowledge transfer, that 10 minutes I would have spent at the beginning of any given class lecturing through the materials, I now have in a lecture video. And the lecture video is counts as class time, and students take a quiz that is essentially, did you watch it and pay attention? Not a hard quiz at all. Um, and then they can watch it over and over again. And the idea is that uh, in uh, cognitive science, one of the least effective ways to master material is to read your notes. But one of the most effective ways is to exercise your recall by trying to go into your long-term memory and bring it back up. And in doing that each time, it gets a little more settled, a little more rich. And so these videos are made to be watched over and over. Some students watch them at three-quarter time. Some students watch them at time and a quarter. And what's so great is the thing that you think is impersonal 
I've learned to not have my camera on. It turns out pedagogically, it works better for them to not see me, which is great because then I don't have to repeat the, the uh, recording so many times. And it also means that the students have told me it's like they get a private tutorial and they can engage with the professor. And it helps that I, I wrote the book as well, but anybody could do this for their classes. Um, so I get really positive feedback on the um, ability to cover the material uh, when they're walking the dog, when they're doing the dishes, when they are watching it as well as listening. Yeah. And then, so they do that before class. And then when they come to class, you can be reasonably assured that the students have gone through this material. And how does that change the classroom experience for you? Oh, my goodness, their questions are so much better. <laughs> I really was just calcifying into some crabby old lady. And it's, and it's just brought my teaching to life in a way that um, I'm just embarrassed was necessary. So now I have a much better sense of um, making the best use of the time where we're live. I think post-pandemic, we probably all feel that. But the, uh, the precious time where you can actually be in the classroom and do a back and forth, and we refer to hypotheticals. There's a a, a sample situation where there's a dispute between two people and I can say, okay, let's say last night in class it was Hannah and Madison. Let's say Hannah says to Madison, if you get, if you climb the flagpole, I'll give you a hundred bucks. If, and if, and if the person climbing the flagpole stops midway, is there a contract? Is there a breach? All those things. And, and you just can't do that online in the same way. And I think that the uh, techniques like that make use of a live classroom and uh, the relationships between the students, which are so important. Yeah. And when, and when you can be assured of that baseline understanding of the core concepts, you know, it, it seems like you could also more easily put them in groups to figure some things out and to solidify those personal connections even more. Absolutely. There's been a lot of criticism about the traditional law school classroom that it ignores the fact that any, like any professional, a huge part of your job is in collaboration. And so I call on students in law firms. It might be three students, and of course they're named for their last name. So it's visualizing themselves in a law firm in a few years' time. And then if they um, don't know the answer, they can raise the single finger of consultation, which let the record reflect is the index finger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when a law firm raises the finger of consultation, then all the law firms talk about the particular question. And then the whole energy of the class goes up. And then after 30 seconds, a minute, whatever it takes, and I can see it's getting quiet, I come in and ask. And everybody is present. So I'm really aware of the um, research from the Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Utah, where my co-author on my casebook, Deborah 3D, was deeply engaged as she created a first set of videos. 
one of the things that came out in her engagement there is that the attention span of students is so much shorter than we professors think. That data where students are watching a video, say, and there's a camera tracking their eye movements, uh, indicate, and this is across a big N, big group, that um, students have about a seven-minute attention span. They will continue listening for about seven minutes. After seven minutes, it starts going down. At 12 minutes, it is nothing. It is radio silence. And so it is crucial for us to recognize that the world has changed. And so you need to, if you want to keep your students present and engaged and making use of the live class time as well as the video class time in recorded uh, videos, you have to reboot. And just and apparently the attention plan, uh, apparently the attention span reboots and that seven minute period starts again if you could interrupt. Right, just some kind of change of activity, some kind of um, uh, some kind of difference, introducing some kind of of shift there. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's research that we've we've come across as well, and we recommend for for videos and and also classroom um, classroom activities. Could I go back to your to the law firms, the students comprising sure. these law firms? And I just I want to point out something that I think is so amazing about that. Um, I've been doing a lot of of reading uh, about this. Um, the idea of inclusivity in education, you know, it's particularly um, important uh, in light of all the the very important work around diversity, equity, and inclusion that that all universities are striving toward now. And one of the ways that inclusivity has been defined in a in a professional setting is to introduce experiences to have students feel as though they are part of that profession and and this idea of identifying with a role or identifying with a particular career so the the act of you naming them you know peterson jones and and hernandez um and and letting them feel as though that you know I can hear my name in that like that sounds pretty good and, and that is just you know it may not even be something you consciously did perhaps it is but I just want to call it out because it is it is just grounded in the literature as one of these practices that uh, that really goes a long way to uh, to helping students see themselves in these roles that you know for some students the idea of them becoming a lawyer may have seemed a pipe dream just. 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And now here they are uh, in your right. classroom. And, and I'm sure that it can be a little bit overwhelming. So I just I want to call that out because that is a really cool um, technique that you're doing. Well, thank you for saying so. And I'm so glad you raised the DEI question. Because while I didn't uh, think of DEI in relation to the um, questions of inclusivity. Um, I stole it from my colleague, Michael Van Alstyne, who is an immensely gifted teacher. Um, but I have since heard from my also immensely talented colleague, Russell McLean, that, and he does do work on DEI and belonging in cognitive science research. And, and, and specifically, it does not at all surprise me to hear the data. You say that the visualization matters. I teach a course on um, 
contract drafting, the basic skills. Like in the case method, there is no room for do, learning a basic skill that, for example, a well-written contract has component parts and they have names. Like you have head, shoulders, and knees and toes. Any well-written contract is going to have a title, a preamble, uh, a recitals, words of agreement, covenants, reps and warranties. And until five years ago, I'm embarrassed to say mostly law schools didn't cover that basic stuff. They thought that the firms would would train students in that. Now the bar exam is uh, requiring, just starting in 2026, the bar exam is going to start testing skills and requiring less memorization, which also is a reflection that students and practitioners can look anything up. Also, our accreditation body, the American Bar Association, requires students to have a certain number of transition to practice credits, which involve things like uh, uh, basic skills, like uh, reading a contract or arguing in front of a judge. Um, so those are really important and changing. And so thinking of yourself in a firm is a really big part of that. Um, the, the other thing I would really love to make sure I get to say is that um, creating these visuals presented opportunities for DEI interventions in the classroom that I little guessed were possible until I did it. So when you're creating visuals, you get to pick images. And in the drop-down slide in PowerPoint, there are public domain pictures. And so, for example, I try to have metaphors. There are big breaches of an agreement that have big consequences. There are little breaches of agreement that have more modest consequences. So I have a picture of a pair of legs with a big rip in the jeans and a little rip in the jeans. And then I use those images throughout to kind of have that, that uh, tactile piece and the, we all have had ripped clothes to, to ground that abstract idea in something really concrete. But then I can also take a look at the skin underneath the jeans. And so I have deliberately created all kinds of inclusivity in those kinds of images. It took some doing, it took some digging, because the um, patterns of exclusion are such that the default is still embarrassingly presumed to be white and male. Um, so uh, the great thing about doing this in conjunction also with my book is that we made avatars in these very fancy animated videos that the publisher created um, that are gender and race inclusive. So their skin is blue and the other one's orange and their names change through the course of these 30 videos. The examples in the middle chapters of the book are, are uh, gender inclusive names of Adam and, excuse me, Adam and Bianca begin. There are our traditional characters. There's examples in law are always A and B. And then for the gender inclusive chapters, it's Alex and Blake. So the videos refer to Alex and Blake. Almost always Alex is on the left side of the screen. Blake is on the right. So you have these kinds of unconscious tools that come in to convey information that I think we have left on the table.
before yeah. now. This is so great. I, I I just am loving this conversation so much. I I want to pivot a little bit to these videos um, because you've had an interesting experience uh, or an interesting dichotomy of experience where you have been able to participate in the creation of videos that are have been made by your publisher um, with I'm assuming a, a a bigger production team and access to some maybe some fancier tools. And then you have only also because we demanded it. It's very low tech. It's PowerPoint slides and voiceovers. But the educational designer was willing to find some characters that didn't look like Archie and Veronica. But we really <laughs> we had to push to do it. But once they but they do I mean they do the music. They they have some really fancy embedded quizzes. Yeah. That's great. But then you've also, as particularly as a result of the pandemic, started creating videos on your own, just using tools that you had available. And I'm thinking about, um, you know, we were talking about identification in a profession. And so for faculty who are listening, who are like, I'm not Steven Spielberg, right? I, I can't produce movies like this. Uh, I don't know how to how to create videos like this. I don't have you know a team like that uh, through a publisher. But you found some ways to make this very accessible. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about how you approach those videos and, and what you learned through the process? Absolutely. I am so glad you mentioned that because one of the really big takeaways I want listeners to just pop in their pockets is that this is easier than you think. First of all, we all lived on Zoom for a year or more. So we're very familiar with getting on a screen, having a bunch of PowerPoints, pressing record, and then letting things play out. It's very similar making a lecture video. Um, you create the slide deck. You could probably create the slide deck from the slides you may already have. Um, you just do things to make sure that the slide deck has, you know, is consistent throughout with the color and the font and those sorts of things. And, and I think it's really important to have images that let everybody in your classroom see that they belong in this professional world. Um, one of the biggest compliments I got about these lecture videos, with I, I've done it for a couple of different courses, and with each one I pick a song that has a little bit of a riff that has to do with either contracts for, for this course or debtor-creditor relations for the other one. And um, I take that little snippet and I have it at the beginning of every video and at the end of every video because I kind of want them to queue up. Okay, this is, we're in contract land now. And one of the wonderful compliments I got uh, from a student uh, last year was that during finals period, he dreamt about this, the, that that little snippet of music. So that means, and you know the cognitive science of this, if you practice the video game before you go to bed and then do it in the morning, you're going to do better than if you practice it at noon and at six and then go to bed. So it's, it's, uh, I thought this is exactly what we wish for is that we convey things to them in a format that can't be as exciting as what they're seeing on YouTube or TikTok or anything else, but at least it's not scratching with sticks in the dirt. 
And I think that the tech and the DEI are absolutely um, closely aligned so that if you have, if you're interested in doing new technology, you gotta be inclusive or you're just hopelessly retro. And I think if you're inclusive, you gotta get beyond sticks in the dirt or you're hopelessly retro that way too. Yeah. Oh, that's so, what, what a great compliment because it's, it's a seemingly little thing, um, but it, it, it was done intentionally uh, with thought behind the impact. And, and I think what it invites us to talk about also is um, the, the balance between these audio or visual cues um, and how they should always be chosen in support of the content and not just as an extra kind of cute add-on um, because there is a lot of research that shows that, you know, if you, if you're doing a, a PowerPoint and you, for example, your wonderful image of the torn jeans to represent that breach of breach of contract or the rift and uh, that I can't remember the language you use, but, but that becomes, like you said, a visual metaphor that you, uh, reinforced throughout, and we're talking, is this a big hole in the jeans or a small hole in the jeans? And that becomes part of the language of the class, right? And it supports the learning. But if if you, as an educator, just for for kind of cute and, and fun effect, threw in just pictures of your kittens um, into that PowerPoint, then that becomes a distraction because there, unless you are making a link to the content that you're, that you're doing, then it becomes distracting and, and not just, and it, and it can actually impede learning. So it, it shows that intentionality, the music that you're picking, the little snippet is thematically related to the course or the lesson that you're doing. And it's, it's done at the beginning and the end, and it's probably not played over what you're saying so that students aren't trying to, to listen to two tracks at the same time or getting distracted by the music. So the, the natural instincts that you have in the creation of this, um, is just, is really wonderful. Well, I'd love to hear that from, from an expert on this. When I started, I had the way too much excitement, way too much going on in my slides. Uh, so the background, I chose a really bright color because I was excited about it and I wanted to bring the classroom alive. But it turns out visually that just doesn't work, that there's a reason our elementary school classrooms were painted pale green, pale yellow, pale blue. It's a great background. And similarly, I learned to have fewer images um, where possible. I Obviously, we have to use a lot of words, but speech bubbles can do a lot of conveying of the information. Um, and having that, the consistency of the same check mark for something going right and the same X for it being wrong is really helpful. It's not professional. It's absolutely not professional. There, there's the, the, I should also really add that not everybody in legal education is sold on this. There's a lot of folks who uh, still think that uh, we should not spoon feed our students and they and they use the phrase spoon feeding every time I give a talk on these videos and quizzes and they say we're just spoon feeding them and they I uh, have a I've written a lot about feminist theory so of course I'm a feminist with a chip on her shoulder when there's a, 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 a bad talking about care work I wonder why it is we associate 
helping people learn the material that they are paying $100,000 in order to master that somehow it's not doing our job to tell them what it's about. It's just, there's something really, um, I think we just need to be cautious when we uh, uh, um, dismissively refer to these supports and scaffolding as spoon feeding. I think that's so important. Yeah, what an interesting insight. Our last question is one that we like to ask all of our guests, and uh, it's this. Do you see something in higher education right now that you feel is really moving the needle? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I, of course, wish I could speak about higher education across the disciplines, but uh, everything I know about medical school is totally out of date and all the more so with nursing and pharmacy and everything else. Um, I think that at least in law, we are updating to focus on skills more than memorization. And that the rec, it just turns on what I said earlier, which is it's so easy to find materials with just a couple of keystrokes and so hard to separate the good stuff from the trash because there's just fewer gatekeepers. And I think students really are in need, and it's got to be true across the schools, that students are really in need of guidance about what is adequate professional information and what is something else and to to separate those so before this podcast i got on google i was looking for medical mnemonics and and uh what people would use and um you know they're just people who create videos all over the place and i don't know if they're students i don't know if they're part of a for-profit test prep. I, I think it's probably a little bit of everything. And it seems to be immensely important across the disciplines that we do what we've always done, which is convey enough information and skills that our students graduate and are able to practice the profession in a competent way. And a huge piece of that is to assess information and evaluate it and understand something new quickly. So really, it's almost like we're teaching them to fish, but we have no idea whether they're going to be fishing in an ocean or fishing in a puddle, or maybe they're going to be fishing for compliments. They'll be doing something totally different than we can imagine. And so in many ways, our task is really different than it used to be. So I think our media must also be different. And and I guess I would also just encourage professors, I, I have to, before we finish, I have to put a plug in for a guy named James Lang who wrote a book called Small Teaching. And he really encourages you to make small changes, that you hear about something new and you think, I really want to totally redo my course. But 
you're not going to, <laughs> unless there's a pandemic and you have to, which hopefully we won't have that happen again soon. Um, so you just do a little bit and you do a little more. And the great news is, is that in ways you little guessed, it brings the material alive for you again. It makes your understanding of this incredibly familiar material actually come to life in new ways. And in doing that, um, you're kind of understanding what it's like to be your students to learn something new. So, you know, you're, you're, as you say, all of us who are professors have done pretty well to get here. We can take a little, a little bruising to the ego while we learn to do this. And I think it's an ethical imperative that we do. I, and I love how you, how you wrap that up with the rejuvenation uh, that can come with that. We know it's good for the students, but uh, it, it works out great when it's also good for ourselves, too. I guess the last thing, there are so many things I want to say. I'm so glad you had me on your show. Um, that I also want to say that your existence as the Center for Teaching and Learning, um, the LEAP's efforts to elevate the uh, seriousness of pedagogical theory um, is hugely important because too often at a major research university, we act as if teaching is the frosting and research is the cake. And the fact is, I probably thought that when I was an early academic, and maybe you kind of have to, to get your footing. Um, and now I really feel like teaching is the thing that is um, most intellectually engaging of almost anything I do. And it is really the ways that um, the future will, will change. And by updating how you do it um, and caring about how we update and sharing information and giving it the respect it deserves is crucial because at least in law and I'm betting elsewhere on campus, there's a still a kind of an old fashioned tendency to say only research matters and teaching you can just do in your sleep almost. Yeah. Well, we are so lucky to have you as a messenger um, in these spaces and, and to bring what you've learned and, and your passion for education, which just comes through in every, every sentence you say. And we are, we are so lucky to have you on the show. Your students are so lucky to have you um, in their classes. And we cannot thank you enough for being willing to come and, and open this world of legal education uh, to all of us today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today on Moving the Needle. Visit us at umaryland.edu slash fctl to hear additional episodes, leave us feedback, or suggest future topics. We'd love to hear from you.